The evidence we obtained about the President's actions and intent presents difficult issues that would need to be resolved if we were making a traditional prosecutorial judgment. At the same time, if we had confidence after a thorough investigation of the facts that the President clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state. Based on the facts and the applicable legal standards, we are unable to reach that judgment. Accordingly, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. If we are serious about rebuilding the American middle class, my view of democratic socialism builds on the success of many other countries around the world who have done a far better job than we have in protecting the needs of their working families, their elderly citizens, their children, their sick, and their poor. This country has socialism for the rich and rugged individualism for the poor. It means building on what Franklin Delano Roosevelt said. When he fought for guaranteed economic rights for all Americans. We need to develop a political movement which once again is prepared to take on and defeat a ruling class whose greed is destroying our nation. Democratic socialism means that we must reform a political system which is corrupt, that we must create an economy a legal framework of obstruction of justice the may 17 2017 appointment order and the special counsel regulations provide this office with jurisdiction to investigate federal crimes committed in the course of and with intent to interfere with the special counsel's investigation such as perjury obstruction of justice destruction of evidence and intimidation of witnesses 28 cfr 600 because of that description of our jurisdiction, we sought evidence for our obstruction of justice investigation with the elements of obstruction offenses in mind. Our evidentiary analysis is similarly focused on the elements of such offenses, although we do not draw conclusions on the ultimate questions that govern a prosecutorial decision under the principles of federal prosecution. Here, we summarize the law interpreting the elements of potentially relevant obstruction statutes in an ordinary case. This discussion does not address the unique constitutional issues that arise in an inquiry into official acts by the President. Those issues are discussed in a later section of this report addressing constitutional defenses that the President's counsel have raised. Three basic elements are common to most of the relevant obstruction statutes, 1. An obstructive act, 2. A nexus between the obstructive act and an official proceeding, and 3. A corrupt intent. C. E. G. 18 U.S.C. 1503, 1505, 1512-C2. We describe those elements as they have been interpreted by the courts. We then discuss a more specific statute aimed at witness tampering, and describe the requirements for attempted offenses and endeavors to obstruct justice.
Obstructive Act. Obstruction of justice law reaches all corrupt conduct capable of producing an effect that prevents justice from being duly administered, regardless of the means employed. United States v. Silverman, 745 F2D 1386, 1393, 11th CIR. 1984, interpreting 18 U.S.C. 1503. An effort to influence a proceeding can qualify as an endeavor to obstruct justice even if the effort was subtle or circuitous and however cleverly or with whatever cloaking of purpose it was made. The verbs obstruct or impede are broad and can refer to anything that blocks, makes difficult, or hinders. An improper motive can render an actor's conduct criminal even when the conduct would otherwise be lawful and within the actor's authority. See United States v. Cueto, affirming obstruction conviction of a criminal defense attorney for litigation-related conduct, United States v. Centolo, 1987, any act by any party whether lawful or unlawful on its face may abridge if performed with a corrupt motive. Obstruction of justice law generally requires a nexus, or connection, to an official proceeding. In section 1503, the nexus must be to pending judicial or grand jury proceedings. In section 1505, the nexus can include a connection to a pending federal agency proceeding or a congressional inquiry or investigation. Under both statutes, the government must demonstrate a relationship in time, causation, or logic between the obstructive act and the proceeding or inquiry to be obstructed. Section I5I2C prohibits obstructive efforts aimed at official proceedings including judicial or grand jury proceedings. For purposes of Section 1512, an official proceeding need not be pending or about to be instituted at the time of the offense. Although a proceeding need not already be in progress to trigger liability under Section 1512, C, a nexus to a contemplated proceeding still must be shown. The nexus requirement narrows the scope of obstruction statutes to ensure that individuals have fair warning of what the law proscribes. The nexus showing has subjective and objective components. As an objective matter, a defendant must act in a manner that is likely to obstruct justice, such that the statute excludes defendants who have an evil purpose but use means that would only unnaturally and improbably be successful. Aguilar, 515 U.S. at 601 to 602. Emphasis added. Internal quotation marks omitted. The endeavor must have the natural and probable effect of interfering with the due administration of justice. I.D. at 599. Citation and internal quotation marks omitted. As a subjective matter, the actor must have contemplated a particular, foreseeable proceeding. A defendant need not directly impede the proceeding. Rather, a nexus exists if discretionary actions of a third person would be required to obstruct the judicial proceeding if it was foreseeable to the defendant that the third party would act on the defendant's communication in such a way as to obstruct the judicial proceeding. Corruptly. The word corruptly provides the intent element for obstruction of justice and means acting knowingly and dishonestly or with an improper motive. To act corruptly means to act with an improper purpose and to engage in conduct knowingly and dishonestly with the specific intent to subvert, impede or obstruct the relevant proceeding. USC 1512-6 requires consciousness of wrongdoing. The requisite showing is made when a person acted with an intent to obtain an improper advantage for himself or someone else, inconsistent with official duty and the rights of others. Witness tampering. A more specific provision in section 1512 prohibits tampering with a witness. 
C-18 U.S.C. 1512, 6-I-3, making it a crime to knowingly use intimidation or corruptly persuade another person, or engage in misleading conduct towards another person, with the intent to influence, delay, or prevent the testimony of any person in an official proceeding or to hinder, delay, or prevent the communication to a law enforcement officer of information relating to the commission or possible commission of a federal offense. To establish corrupt persuasion, it is sufficient that the defendant asked a potential witness to lie to investigators in contemplation of a likely federal investigation into his conduct. It also covers urging a witness to recall a fact that the witness did not know, even if the fact was actually true. See Lachey, 417 F3D at 719. Corrupt persuasion also can be shown in certain circumstances when a person, with an improper motive, urges a witness not to cooperate with law enforcement. See United States v. Schatz, 1998, telling secretary not to say anything to the FBI and she would not be bothered. When the charge is acting with the intent to hinder, delay, or prevent the communication of information to law enforcement under Section L-512 b. 3, the nexus to a preceding inquiry articulated in Aguilar that an individual have knowledge that his actions are likely to affect the judicial proceeding, 515 U.S. at 599 does not apply because the obstruction Act is aimed at the communication of information to investigators, not at impeding an official proceeding. Acting knowingly corruptly requires proof that the individual was conscious of wrongdoing. Arthur Anderson, 544 U.S. at 705 to 706, declining to explore the outer limits of this element but indicating that an instruction was infirm where it permitted conviction even if the defendant honestly and sincerely believed that the conduct was lawful. It is an affirmative defense that the conduct consisted solely of lawful conduct, and that the defendant's sole intention was to encourage, induce, or cause the other person to testify truthfully. Attempts and Endeavors This free audio is provided by MullerReportAudioBook.com. Section I-512 C-2 covers both substantive obstruction offenses and attempts to obstruct justice. Under general principles of attempt law, a person is guilty of an attempt when he has the intent to commit a substantive offense and takes an overt act that constitutes a substantial step towards that goal. See United States v. Resendez Ponce, 549 U.S. 102, 106-107, 2007. The act must be substantial, in that it was strongly corroborative of the defendant's criminal purpose. While mere abstract talk does not suffice, any concrete and specific acts that corroborate the defendant's intent can constitute a substantial step thus, soliciting an innocent agent to engage in conduct constituting an element of the crime may qualify as a substantial step. The Omnibus Clause of 18 U.S.C. 1503 prohibits an endeavor to obstruct justice, which sweeps more broadly than Section 1512's attempt provision. See United States v. Sampson, 898 F3D 287302-2DCIR. 2018, United States v. Leisure, 844 F2D 1347-1366-1367-8CIR. 1988, Collecting Cases. It is well established that an obstruction of justice offense is complete when one corruptly endeavors to obstruct or impede the due administration of justice, the prosecution need not prove that the due administration of justice was actually obstructed or impeded. 
Investigative and Evidentiary Considerations After the appointment of the special counsel, this office obtained evidence about the following events relating to potential issues of obstruction of justice involving the president. A. The president's January 27, 2017 dinner with former FBI Director James Corney in which the president reportedly asked for Corney's loyalty, one day after the White House had been briefed by the Department of Justice on contacts between former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and the Russian ambassador. B. The president's February 14, 2017 meeting with Corney in which the president reportedly asked Corney not to pursue an investigation of Flynn. C. The president's private requests to Corney to make public the fact that the president was not the subject of an FBI investigation and to lift what the president regarded as a cloud. D. The president's outreach to the Director of National Intelligence and the directors of the National Security Agency and the Central Intelligence Agency about the FBI's Russia investigation. E. The president's stated rationales for terminating Corny on May 9, 2017, including statements that could reasonably be understood as acknowledging that the FBT's Russia investigation was a factor in Corny's termination. F. The president's reported involvement in issuing a statement about the June 9, 2016 Trump Tower meeting between Russians and senior Trump campaign officials that said the meeting was about adoption and omitted that the Russians had offered to provide the Trump campaign with derogatory information about Hillary Clinton. Taking into account that information and our analysis of applicable statutory and constitutional principles discussed below in Volume 2, Section 3, Infra, we determined that there was a sufficient factual and legal basis to further investigate potential obstruction of justice issues involving the president. Many of the core issues in an obstruction of justice investigation turn on an individual's actions and intent. We therefore requested that the White House provide us with documentary evidence in its possession on the relevant events. We also sought and obtained the White House's concurrence in our conducting interviews of White House personnel who had relevant information. And we interviewed other witnesses who had pertinent knowledge, obtained documents on a voluntary basis when possible, and used legal process where appropriate. These investigative steps allowed us to gather a substantial amount of evidence. We also sought a voluntary interview with the president. After more discussion, the president declined to be interviewed. During the course of our discussions, the president did agree to answer written questions on certain Russia-related topics, and he provided us with answers. He did not similarly agree to provide written answers to questions on obstruction topics or questions on events during the transition. Ultimately, while we believed that we had the authority and legal justification to issue a grand jury subpoena to obtain the president's testimony, we chose not to do so. We made that decision in view of the substantial delay that such an investigative step would likely produce at a late stage in our investigation. We also assessed that based on the significant body of evidence we had already obtained of the president's actions and his public and private statements describing or explaining those actions, we had sufficient evidence to understand relevant events and to make certain assessments without the president's testimony. The office's decision-making process on this issue is described in more detail in Appendix C, Infra, in a note that precedes the president's written responses. In assessing the evidence we obtained, we relied on common principles that apply in any investigation. The issue of criminal intent is often inferred from circumstantial evidence. Guilty knowledge can rarely be established by direct evidence. Therefore, elements such as knowledge or intent may be proved by circumstantial evidence. 
The principle that intent can be inferred from circumstantial evidence is a necessity in criminal cases, given the right of a subject to assert his privilege against compelled self-incrimination under the Fifth Amendment and therefore decline to testify. Accordingly, determinations on intent are frequently reached without the opportunity to interview an investigatory subject. Obstruction of justice cases are consistent with this rule. A defendant may be found culpable where the reasonable and foreseeable consequences of her acts are the obstruction of justice circumstantial evidence that illuminates intent may include a pattern of potentially obstructive acts. Fed. R. Evidence. 404. 6. Evidence of a crime, wrong, or other act may be admissible to prove motive, opportunity, intent, preparation, plan, knowledge, identity, absence of mistake, or lack of accident. Credibility judgments may also be made based on objective facts and circumstantial evidence. Standard jury instructions highlight a variety of factors that are often relevant in assessing credibility. These include whether a witness had a reason not to tell the truth, whether the witness had a good memory, whether the witness had the opportunity to observe the events about which he testified, whether the witness's testimony was corroborated by other witnesses, and whether anything the witness said or wrote previously contradicts his testimony. In addition to those general factors, we took into account more specific factors in assessing the credibility of conflicting accounts of the facts. For example, contemporaneous written notes can provide strong corroborating evidence. Similarly, a witness's recitation of his account before he had any motive to fabricate also supports the witness's credibility. Finally, a witness's false description of an encounter can imply consciousness of wrongdoing. See Al-Adahi v. Obama, 2010, noting the well-settled principle that false exculpatory statements are evidence often strong evidence of guilt. We applied those settled legal principles in evaluating the factual results of our investigation. This free audio is provided by MullerReportAudioBook.com. Section 2. This section of the report details the evidence we obtained. We first provide an overview of how Russia became an issue in the 2016 presidential campaign, and how candidate Trump responded. We then come to the key events that we investigated, the president's conduct concerning the FBI investigation of Michael Flynn, the president's reaction to public confirmation of the FBI's Russia investigation, events leading up to and surrounding the termination of FBI Director Comey, efforts to terminate the special counsel, efforts to curtail the scope of the special counsel's investigation, efforts to prevent disclosure of information about the June 9, 2016 Trump Tower meeting between Russians and senior campaign officials, efforts to have the Attorney General unrecuse, and conduct towards McGahn, Cohen, and other witnesses. We summarize the evidence we found and then analyze it by reference to the three statutory obstruction of justice elements, obstructive act, nexus to a proceeding, and intent. We focus on elements because, by regulation, the special counsel has jurisdiction to investigate federal crimes committed in the course of, and with intent to interfere with, the special counsel's investigation, such as perjury, obstruction of justice, destruction of evidence, and intimidation of witnesses. 28 CFR 600. For a consistent with our jurisdiction to investigate federal obstruction crimes, we gathered evidence that is relevant to the elements of those crimes and analyzed them within an elements framework while refraining from reaching ultimate conclusions about whether crimes were committed, for the reasons explained above. 
This section also does not address legal and constitutional defenses raised by counsel for the president. Those defenses are analyzed in Volume 2, Section 3. A. The campaign's response to reports about Russian support for Trump. During the 2016 campaign, the media raised questions about a possible connection between the Trump campaign and Russia. 7. The questions intensified after WikiLeaks released politically damaging Democratic Party emails that were reported to have been hacked by Russia. Trump responded to questions about possible connections to Russia by denying any business involvement in Russia even though the Trump Organization had pursued a business project in Russia as late as June 2016. Trump also expressed skepticism that Russia had hacked the emails at the same time as he and other campaign advisors privately sought information about any further planned WikiLeaks releases. After the election, when questions persisted about possible links between Russia and the Trump campaign, the president-elect continued to deny any connections to Russia and privately expressed concerns that reports' interference might lead the public to question the legitimacy of his election. This section summarizes and cites various news stories not for the truth of the information contained in the stories, but rather to place candidate Trump's response to those stories in context. Volume 1 of this report analyzes the underlying facts of several relevant events that were reported on by the media during the campaign. As discussed in Volume 1, while the investigation identified numerous links between individuals with ties to the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign, the evidence was not sufficient to charge that any member of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with representatives of the Russian government to interfere in the 2016 election. 1. Press reports allege links between the Trump campaign and Russia. On June 16, 2015, Donald J. Trump declared his intent to seek nomination as the Republican candidate for president. Nine by early 2016, he distinguished himself among Republican candidates by speaking of closer ties with Russia, saying he would get along well with Russian President Vladimir Putin, questioning whether the NATO alliance was obsolete, and praising to Putin as a strong leader. 13. The press reported that Russian political analysts and commentators perceived Trump as favorable to Russia. Beginning in February 2016 and continuing through the summer, the media reported that several Trump campaign advisors appeared to have ties to Russia. For example, the press reported that campaign advisor Michael Flynn was seated next to Vladimir Putin at an RT gala in Moscow in December 2015 and that Flynn had appeared regularly on RT as an analyst. The press also reported that foreign policy adviser Carter Page had ties to a Russian state-run gas company, and that campaign chairman Paul Manafort had done work for the Russian-backed former Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych. In addition, the press raised questions during the Republican National Convention about the Trump campaign's involvement in changing the Republican platform's stance on giving weapons to Ukraine to fight Russian and rebel forces. Two. The Trump campaign reacts to WikiLeaks's release of hacked emails. On June 14, 2016, a cybersecurity firm that had conducted in-house analysis for the Democratic National Committee DNC, posted an announcement that Russian government hackers had infiltrated the DNC's computer and obtained access to documents. On July 22, 2016, the day before the Democratic National Convention, WikiLeaks posted thousands of hacked DNC documents revealing sensitive internal deliberations. Soon thereafter, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager publicly contended that Russia had hacked the DNC emails and arranged their release in order to help candidate Trump. 
On July 26, 2016, The New York Times reported that U.S. intelligence agencies had told the White House they now have high confidence that the Russian government was behind the theft of emails and documents from the Democratic National Committee. Within the Trump campaign, aides reacted with enthusiasm to reports of the hacks, discussed with campaign officials that WikiLeaks would release the hacked material. Some witnesses said that Trump himself discussed the possibility of upcoming releases. Michael Cohen, then executive vice resident of the Trump Organization and special counsel to Trump, recalled hearing Cohen recalled that Trump responded, Oh good, all right, Manafort recalled that Trump responded that Manafort should redact it. At the same time Gates was with Trump on a trip to an airport, and shortly after the call ended, Trump told Gates that more releases of damaging information would be coming, were discussed within the campaign, and in the summer of 2016, the campaign was planning a communications strategy based on the possible release off Clinton emails by WikiLeaks. 3. Of the Trump campaign reacts to allegations that Russia was seeking to aid candidate Trump campaign. In the days that followed WikiLeaks's July 22, 2016 release of hacked DNC emails, the Trump campaign publicly rejected suggestions that Russia was seeking to aid candidate Trump. On July 26, 2016, Trump tweeted that it was crazy to suggest that Russia was dealing with Trump on that for the record, he had zero investments in Russia. In a press conference the next day, July 27, 2016, Trump characterized this whole thing with Russia as a total deflection and stated that it was far-fetched and ridiculous. Trump said that the assertion that Russia had hacked the emails was unproven, but stated that it would give him no pause if Russia had Clinton's emails. Trump added, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. Trump also said that there's nothing that I can think of that I'd rather do than have Russia friendly as opposed to the way they are right now, and in response to a question about whether he would recognize Crimea as Russian territory and consider lifting sanctions, Trump replied, we'll be looking at that. Yeah, we'll be looking. During the press conference, Trump repeated I have nothing to do with Russia five times. He stated that the closest he came to Russia was that Russians may have purchased a home or condos from him. He said that after he held the Miss Universe pageant in Moscow in 2013 he had been interested in working with Russian companies that wanted to put a lot of money into developments in Russia but it never worked out. He explained, frankly, I didn't want to do it for a couple of different reasons. But we had a major developer that wanted to develop property in Moscow and other places. But we decided not to do it. The Trump Organization, however, had been pursuing a building project in Moscow the Trump Tower Moscow project from approximately September 2015 through June 2016, and the candidate was regularly updated on developments, including possible trips by Michael Cohen to Moscow to promote the deal and by Trump himself to finalize it. Cohen recalled speaking with Trump after the press conference about Trump's denial of any business dealings in Russia, which Cohen regarded as untrue. Trump told Cohen that Trump Tower Moscow was not a deal yet and said, why mention it if it is not a deal? According to Cohen, at around this time, in response to Trump's disavowal off connections to Russia, campaign advisors had developed a party line that Trump had no business with Russia and no connections to Russia. In addition to denying any connections with Russia, the Trump campaign reacted to reports of Russian election interference in aid of the campaign by seeking to distance itself from Russian contacts. 
For example, in August 2016, foreign policy adviser J.D. Gordon declined an invitation to Russian ambassador Sergei Kislak's residence because the timing was not optimal in view of media reports about Russian interference. On August 19, 2016, Manafort was asked to resign amid media coverage scrutinizing his ties to a pro-Russian political party in Ukraine and links to Russian business. And when the media published stories about Page's connections to Russia in September 2016, Trump campaign officials terminated Page's association with the campaign and told the press that he had played no role in the campaign. On October 7, 2016, WikiLeaks released the first set of emails stolen by a Russian intelligence agency from Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta. The same day, the federal government announced that the Russian government directed the recent compromises of emails from U.S. persons and institutions, including from U.S. political organizations. The governmente statement directly linked Russian hacking to the releases on WikiLeaks, with the goal of interfering with the presidential election, and concluded that only Russia's senior-most officials could have authorized these activities based on their scope and sensitivity. On October 11, 2016, Podesta stated publicly that the FBI was investigating Russia's hacking and said that candidate Trump might have known in advance that the hacked emails were going to be released. Vice presidential candidate Mike Pence was asked whether the Trump campaign was in cahoots with WikiLeaks in releasing damaging Clinton-related information and responded, nothing could be further from the truth. After the election, Trump continues to deny any contacts or connections with Russia or that Russia aided his election. Have you discussed Mueller or his investigation with anyone at Kasowitz, Benson & Torres, the law firm founded by Mark Kasowitz, President Trump's personal lawyer? Have you discussed it with anyone? Would you talk to him? Be sure about your answers. I'm asking you a very direct question, yes or no? Yes or no? Sir, please answer the question. I'll ask again. I asked the question just a minute ago. I'm sorry you forgot. Um... I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh... Hey guys, you know what? America does not want to witness a food fight. They want to know how we're going to put food on their table. I will repeat it. I will. Had he been clear. I would like to speak on the issue of race. I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it's personal, it was hurtful, to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. You also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public school. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. I will also immediately put in place a meaningful process for reviewing the cases for asylum. I will release children from cages. I will get rid of the private detention centers. Uh, Attorney General Barr, has the president or anyone at the White House ever asked or suggested that you open an investigation of anyone? Yes or no? Yes or no, please. Seems sir. you'd remember something like that and be able to tell us. So you're not denying that you've spoken with Well, I, I said I don't remember anything like that. Okay. I'll move on. Okay. Clearly, you're not going to answer the question.